Wasn't it wonderful to hear what the Lord's been doing throughout Africa? Acts chapter 16, replicated in Acts 32, 38, and ongoing. Isn't it good to be part of the mission of God? Uh, Let us pray, and then uh, we'll turn to the word. Lord, it, it astounds us that you, the mighty God, might use us, weak vessels, in your purposes and plans. Father, speak to us, we pray, this evening. Would you shine the light of your word onto our hearts? Would you refresh us with the gospel? Would you loosen the grip of this world on our lives? And enable us to live for what lasts for eternity. Amen. Uh, Well, can you take your church Bibles and turn up 1 Corinthians chapter 9? It's on page 956 of the church Bibles. 1 Corinthians chapter 9. Listen to the word of the Lord. Am I not free? Am I not an apostle? Have I not seen Jesus our Lord? Are you not my workmanship in the Lord? If to others I am not an apostle, at least I am to you, for you are the seal of my apostleship in the Lord. This is my defense to those who would examine me. Do we not have the right to eat and drink? Do we not have the right to take along a believing wife, as do the other apostles and the brothers of the Lord and Cephas? Or is it only Barnabas and I who have no right to refrain from working for a living? Who serves as a soldier at his own expense? Who plants a vineyard without eating any of its fruit? Or or who tends a flock without getting some of the milk? Do I say these things on human authority? Does not the law say the same? For it is written in the law of Moses, you shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain. Is it for oxen that God is concerned? Does he not speak entirely for our sake? It was written for our sake because the plowman should plow in hope and the thresher thresh in hope of sharing in the crop. If we have sown spiritual things among you, is it too much if we reap material things from you? If others share this rightful claim on you, do we not even more? Nevertheless, We have not made use of this right, but we endure anything rather than put an obstacle in the way of the gospel of Christ. Do you not know that those who are employed in the temple service get their food from the temple and those who serve at the altar share in the sacrificial offerings? In the same way, the Lord commanded that those who proclaim the gospel should get their living by the gospel. But I have not made use of any of these rights. 
nor am I writing these things to secure any such provision. For I would rather die than have anyone deprive me of my ground of boasting. For if I preach the gospel, that gives me no ground for boasting. The necessity is laid upon me. Woe to me if I do not preach the gospel. For if I do this of my own will, I have a reward, but not of my own will. I am still entrusted with a stewardship. What then is my reward? That in my preaching, I may present the gospel free of charge, so as not to make full use of my right in the gospel. For though I am free from all, I have made myself a servant to all that I might win more of them. To the Jews, I became as a Jew in order to win Jews. To those under the law, I became as one under the law, though not being myself under the law, that I might win those under the law. To those outside the law, I became as one outside the law, not being outside the law of God, but under the law of Christ, that I might win those outside the law. To the weak, I became weak, that I might win the weak. I have become all things to all people, that by all means, I might save some. I do it all for the sake of the gospel that I may share with them in its blessings. Do you not know that in a race all the runners compete, but only one receives the prize? So run that you may obtain it. Every athlete exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we, an imperishable So I do not run aimlessly. I do not box as one beating the air, but I discipline my body and keep it under control, lest after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified. This is the word of the Lord. Can I ask you a question? I'm I'm afraid it's a little bit rude and a little bit impertinent, but I'm British, I can do this, okay? How often do you think about your own death? Now, I'm not an overly morbid person. Really, I'm not. But but fairly early on in my Christian life, I, I was reading Jonathan Edwards, and I looked at his resolutions. Jonathan Edwards, I'm sure you know, was was an 18th century American pastor and theologian. And in his early 20s, he decided to set down 70 resolutions for the rest of his life. Listen to resolution nine. To think much on all occasions of my dying and of the common circumstances which attend death. You see, Jonathan Edwards, he thought a lot about his death. And I think the reason that he did that was actually because of resolution number 52. Listen to resolution 52. He said, I frequently hear persons in old age say how they would live if they were to live their lives over again. Resolved that I will live just so as I can think I shall wish I had done. Supposing I live to old age. 
Well, can I ask you, what are you going to regret? I've already had my time. (laughs) Can I ask you, what are you going to regret on your deathbed? I'm pretty certain that on my deathbed, I am going to regret the hours and hours and hours I spent watching trashy Australian soaps as a teenager. I know that I'm going to regret the money I spent on buying a VHS video recorder just as DVDs came out. And I am 100% certain that I'm going to regret watching Downton Abbey the movie on the flights out here. (laughs) You know, there is nothing like considering the end of our life, which of course is inevitable, to help us to get perspective on how we're living in the here and now. And as we turn to chapter 9, we're giving a... We're given a snapshot, a brief glimpse of the Apostle Paul's life. The whole chapter is about him. Did you notice that? It's it's I, 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 I. It is intensely personal. Paul is speaking about himself. He he wants us to get an insight, a, a glimpse into his own priorities for life, into what drove him, into what really made him tick. And we're going to see three things this evening. Firstly, we're going to see gospel-shaped sacrifice. Then we're going to see gospel-shaped living. And thirdly, we're going to see gospel-shaped discipline. So firstly, gospel-shaped sacrifice. That's verses 1 to 18. Uh, we're joining 1 Corinthians in the middle of the letter. That's a dangerous thing to do. So let me, let me update you on, on where we're up to in the letter. Uh, so back in chapter 8... But Paul was addressing the thorny issue of whether the Christians in Corinth could eat food sacrificed to idols. And his answer, of course, was yes. Yes, you can. At a theoretical level, at least you can. Because idols, false gods, they they are nothing at all. So it doesn't matter at all if food has been sacrificed to nothing. So so on a theoretical level, you are free to eat any food you like, whatever it's been sacrificed to, because there is only one God at a theoretical level. But we all know that decisions in the real world are never just made on a theoretical level, are they? It's never just a question of what knowledge tells us that we can do. Look at verse 1 of chapter 8. Paul reminds his readers, he says, Knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. And the question isn't simply, what can I do? The questions Christians should be asking is... What does love tell me to do? And so, yes, the Corinthian Christians, they are free to eat food sacrificed to idols if they want. They're free to do that. They are. But the criteria of love, love for their fellow Christians who are still troubled by idols, might mean that they don't use that freedom that they have. Now, in chapter 9, Paul develops that argument 
using an example from his own life. Let's see if we can follow the logic. I'm going to try and and break it down briefly. Uh, Firstly, in verse 1, Paul gives us the evidence for the fact that he's an apostle. So two pieces of evidence. Evidence number one, he says, don't you remember that I've seen the risen Lord Jesus? That makes me an apostle. And then evidence number two, don't you know that you yourselves are proof that I'm an apostle? You are the fruit of my apostolic work. Paul's saying, I'm an apostle. Look at the evidence. And then he goes on to say, verse three, you know that as an apostle, I have certain rights. The right to food and drink, verse four. And the apostles, they have the right to bring their families along with them on missionary journeys, verse five. He then goes on to provide some evidence. This is not just me saying it, Paul says. He gives examples from everyday life in verse 7. And then he goes on to give some examples from the Bible itself. Look at verse 9. Paul quotes from Deuteronomy chapter 25, verse 4. God in his law tells the farmers not to muzzle the ox when it's treading out grain. Why? Well, because the ox who's doing the hard work deserves to eat some of the grain that it's treading. And look at the end of the verse. Is it for oxen that God is concerned? Well, of course, in in one sense, it it is. God does care about the beasts of the fields. But how much more does he care about his apostles, his workers? How much more does he care about his pastors? You know that Andrew and Piers and Tory, they are your pack of oxes here at Cedar Springs. It's very flattering, isn't it? But the principle is clear. God's workers have the right to be materially supported by those they minister to. That's stated there clearly in verse 11. God's word tells us that. But look at what Paul decided. Second half of verse 12, the the new paragraph. Nevertheless, we have not made use of this right. Why? Well, because we endure anything rather than put an obstacle in the way of the gospel of Christ. You see, the, the city of Corinth is in Greece. And in the first century, Greece was awash with phony philosophers. Uh, They they go around all the major cities uh, peddling their new philosophical teachings, and they gather people around them who would would just lap up the teaching and give them money. It it was just a racket to, to make a quick buck. And the Apostle Paul wanted to do everything within his power to distance himself from these phony teachers, to make sure that nothing he did detracted from his message, the message of free grace in the gospel. And so he decided not to use his right to financial support. Instead, he stayed up every night throughout the night making tents. Now, I think when we hear about Paul being a tent maker, we have a kind of romantic idea of it, don't we? 
So we think of the Apostle Paul as, you know, taking a night shift down our REI, looking after the canvas tents and making sure they're well stocked. And we think to ourselves, well, that's not such a bad idea. It's a bit easier than being an accountant, isn't it? But, you know, tents in the first century, they weren't made of canvas. They were made of leather. They were, they were big, heavy, stinky things. Paul almost certainly had his hands permanently dyed brown because he spent night after night manually handling this mucky leather. But Paul put up with that, verse 12, so that nothing would hinder the gospel. Principled self-sacrifice. So what does that look like for us here today in Knoxville? Uh, Let me tell you about two American heroes. Heroes in the United Kingdom. Uh, On the 17th of September 1992, a USF-111 fighter bomber was returning to its base in the village of Upper Hayford in Oxfordshire. The the captain was a man called Captain Jerry Lind, and he had a navigator with him, Major uh, Mike McGuire. They'd been on a routine training flight. But as they were flying into land, their aircraft experienced an almost total hydraulic failure, leaving the pilot with hardly any control over the plane. The control center back at base ordered them to eject immediately. They said, you cannot land this plane. But they looked down to the ground and they saw the village beneath them and knew that if they ejected, the plane would crash and would kill those living below. So they stayed on board. That They managed to just direct the plane past the village and crash landed in a field, killing both of them. Captain Lind and Major Maguire, they had a right to eject from that plane. They did. But for the sake of others, they chose not to use that right and they died. Friend, you have a right to an above average standard of living. You do. If you're at a good job and you work hard, you have that right. But for the sake of the gospel, you might choose not to use that right in order to give money here to ministry in Knoxville and overseas. You know, if you get a call from head office in Nashville saying, we've got a new job for you, a great promotion, you can come and be a vice president here in Nashville, you have a right to take that job. You do, it's your right. But for the sake of the gospel, you might choose not to use that right so that you can continue investing in the relationships you have with your non-Christian colleagues here in Knoxville and your neighbor down the road who has turned their back on Jesus. Friends, you have a right to stay here in Knoxville. I love your city. It is a beautiful place. I can see why you love living here in Knoxville. You've got wonderful blessings here. And you have that right to live here. You do. But for the sake of the gospel, you might choose to move to the UK, where less than 1% of the people attend the gospel church. You might choose to move to Mozambique, 
to Chile. You might forgo your right to live here. That is principled self-denial of your rights, and they are your rights. But you do it for the sake of the gospel. But, but why? Why would we do that? Why? And, and how? I mean, how could we think about doing that? Maybe you're here this evening and you're not yet a Christian. And you think, boy, who, who is this guy from England they've got up preaching? You know, this is Tennessee. This is not the sort of thing we talk about. This is extremist stuff. How did he get through border control? Well, can I say to you, if that is you, that the reason that we Christians are willing to make those sacrifices it is not because we're trying to earn God's favor. Not at all. No, it is because God has enabled us to make those sacrifices by already having done something far more sacrificial for us. God the Son, who has forever lived in perfect joy and happiness with God the Father and God the Holy Spirit in heaven, he gave up his rights. He left the comfort of heaven in order to become a man, weak and frail and struggling just like us, hungry like us. He denied his right to rule from heaven in order to be enthroned by nails on a cruel Roman cross. And he did it for us, for you and I. You know, when I think about Captain Lind and Major Maguire, I think it's stunning that these two men died leaving behind families and they died for people they knew nothing about. They, they didn't know these people. They, they weren't Americans. They were random British people they did not know. It's amazing, isn't it? But you know, it is even more amazing that Jesus died for us because he knows us. He knows that far from being his friends, by nature we're his enemies. We're people who have turned our back on him, waved our angry fist at him and said, we want nothing more to do with you. He died for us in that state, giving his life for ours. My non-Christian friend, will you receive that gift? Will you receive that forgiveness? Will you receive Jesus giving up his rights, his life for yours? My Christian friends, will, will you consider what this means? We have been empowered to live radically self-sacrificial lives, principled self-sacrifice because we've already been served by a God who has given up his rights for us. Gospel-shaped sacrifice. Secondly, verses 19 to 23. Uh, Paul shows how his gospel priorities shaped the way he lived. You know, Paul was a unique man. 
There was no one really like him. He was born a Jew, and he was a very well-qualified Jew. Acts chapter 22 tells us that in Jerusalem, he had been schooled by Gamaliel, one of the finest rabbis of the day. He had a premier Jewish education. But Paul was also a Roman citizen. He was a free man living with extraordinary privileges that were denied the vast majority of the population of the day. Paul was elite. He really was. He was well positioned. He was able to make a name for himself, able to move in high places, to make money. He could have had it all. And yet, verse 19 Though I am free from all, I have made myself a servant to all. Why? That I might win some. That was Paul's overriding motivation in life. He wanted to use all the means, all the privileges that he had been afforded in order to win more and more people for Jesus. In order, verse 22, to save some. Have you ever wondered why the Apostle Paul, the Apostle who who so stoutly refused to have Titus circumcised in Galatians, decided to circumcise Timothy in Acts chapter 16? It's weird, isn't it? Why such a fuss about Titus and then just go ahead and, and circumcise Timothy? Well, we're told. He refused to circumcise Titus because people were telling Titus that it was necessary for his salvation. But with Timothy, he circumcises him really quickly because it helped the spread of the gospel. You see, Timothy couldn't win a hearing among Jewish believers when he had a Jewish mother but had not been circumcised. And so, for the sake of the gospel, Timothy got circumcised. You see, Paul lived a life of extraordinary flexibility, being willing to change, willing to forgo his personal preferences, willing to do what was uncomfortable because his concern was for others and the cause of the gospel. You know, today we call it contextualization. He became a Jew to the Jews, a Gentile to the Gentiles, weak to the weak, verses 20 to 22. I wonder whether you've heard of the British missionary Hudson Taylor. He was a missionary in China in the 18th century, and unlike the vast majority of missionaries at the time, he decided to adopt the customs of his host country. Uh, So Hudson Taylor wore Chinese dress. He learned the Chinese language. He he imitated their habits. He ate Chinese food. He even ordered that the the homes and the churches that were built were built according to Chinese architecture. Now, people back home in jolly old England said that Hudson Taylor had gone native. You know, he's lost British values. The, The next thing to go will be the gospel. But listen to what Hudson Taylor said, echoing Paul's words in verse 22. He said, let us in everything unsinful become Chinese, that by all means we might save some. 
Can I ask you, is your life radically shaped by the gospel? Are you willing to forgo what you're comfortable with in order to win those God has placed around you? I wonder, are you willing to watch, I don't know, the, the Tonight Show? Not because you love Jimmy Fallon. He's, from a British perspective, not funny at all. <laughs> but because you know that that is exactly what your non-Christian colleagues have been watching over the weekend. And when you want to get into work tomorrow morning, you want to have a conversation with them about what they've done over the weekend so that they will ask you what you did yesterday. I wonder, are you willing to change your accent? Uh, rather than saying, you all, you start saying, yeah, so that your southern neighbor won't think you're a stuck-up East Coast, or even worse, a Brit. I wonder, are you willing to put up with the drums in a worship service, even though you think they make an infernal noise? Because you know that the drum beats, it really helps the younger people in their corporate worship. Will you let your life be shaped by the priorities of the gospel? Will you say with the Apostle Paul, I have become all things to all people so that by all means I might save some. You know, living that way will take discipline, which leads us on to our third point. Uh, verse 24. Do you not know that in a race all the runners compete, but only one receives the prize? So run that you may obtain it. Now that's a weird verse, isn't it? What's the Apostle Paul talking about here? He's drawing on a local context. You see, just down the road from Corinth, um, they ran something called the, the Ithmian Games every two years. They weren't quite on a par with the Olympics, uh, but they were pretty close. And so in the months leading up to the Ithmian Games, uh, athletes would descend upon Corinth and start running and exercising and getting ready for the Games. These athletes, they were, they were very disciplined. They, they went into strict training. And Paul's point is, so too must Christians. Now, we need to be careful here. Is Paul saying that the Christian life is a bit like a race and, and whichever one of you wins it gets to heaven? Well, no, of course not. We know that's not right, don't we? So is he saying that unless we put all of our energies into to running the Christian race, we'll, we'll end up disqualified. Verse 27, we'll end up losing our salvation unless we try really, really hard. Is that what he's saying? But it can't be that either, can it? Our self-discipline and our hard work, it didn't save us in the first place, did it? It was Christ's death on the cross, him doing what we could not do, him taking the punishment that we deserve. We did nothing for our salvation. And our hard work does not keep us saved. No, again, it's the finished work of Christ. So, so what is it that Paul's speaking about here? Well, I think the crucial clue is actually found six chapters earlier in, 
in chapter 3, verse 13, just flick back to that with me. There we find the same word that in chapter 9, verse 27, is translated disqualified. And here in chapter 3, verse 13, it's translated test. Test. Do you remember what's going on in chapter 3? Paul's talking about the quality of his work, his his church building work. He's saying it will be examined on the last day and its quality will be tested. You see, that's the race that the Apostle Paul is talking about. Not the race to salvation, but the race to spending the rest of our lives in the most productive way that lasts on for eternity. So can I ask you, do you struggle with discipline in the Christian life? Do you find yourself constantly frustrated at your seeming inability to do the things that you want to do? Do you find yourself frustrated that you're missing out on your daily devotions? Do you find yourself time and again feeling that your family devotions are just not what they should be? Do you find yourself frustrated that you're always turning up late for church rather than coming early and being able to help? Well, could it be that you haven't realized that you're in a race? If I was to ask you this evening what your life mission is, would you have an answer? Do you know what race you're in? Well, if not, no wonder, verse 26, do you feel like you're running the Christian life aimlessly? No wonder you feel like that boxer who's just punching the air. You need to get in the race. Several years ago, my wife's brother announced, just to the family, one Christmas, he announced that he planned to break the world record for cycling around the world. 18,000 miles. We got a photo of him. Now, the family, we were shocked, okay? Now, James, he could ride a bike. You know, he learned to ride a bike as a boy, and he'd done some long cycle rides, but he was not a cyclist. James is a furniture maker by profession. But, you know, with that goal in view, James set about training. Day after day for the next six months. And when he finally set out on that cycle ride, he managed to break the world record by a whole 16 days. Now, if you're a Christian here this evening, you have an even more challenging and exciting race ahead of you. One where you will receive not merely a world record that would get broken six weeks later, that's what happened. (laughs) But you're going to receive a wreath, a crown, of bringing others to glory, which will last, verse 25, forever. So live a life of gospel-shaped discipline now. Let me close with one more of Jonathan Edwards' resolutions. Resolution 50, resolved. I will act 
so as I think I shall judge would have been best and most prudent when I come into the future world. Friends, that's 2020 vision, isn't it? Let us live gospel-shaped lives which count for eternity. Let me pray. Lord Jesus, thank you that before the Apostle Paul uttered these words, you uttered them in eternity. I will not make use of my rights. Thank you, Jesus, that you made the ultimate sacrifice. Thank you that you who are rich beyond all measure became poor for us. You who have everything by right gave up all things for us. You who have life and life to the full had life squeezed out of you on the cross and you did it for us. Oh Lord, with the knowledge of what you have done for us, free us from the pettiness of standing on our rights and wanting what we think we deserve. Would we know that we deserve nothing and yet we have been given everything so that we might be willing to deny ourselves all our rights, but by any means, we might save some. And would all the glory and praise go to you now and forevermore. Amen.